Welcome to the podcast In the Flow Conversations with Pioneers in Pediatric Heart Failure and Transplantation. My name is Neha Bansal, and I'm a pediatric heart failure and transplant cardiologist at Children's Hospital at Montefiore in New York City. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode with Dr. West and Dr. Urschel on ABO incompatible heart transplantation. For the episode today, we will be talking about the formation of the Pediatric Heart Transplant Society. The PHTS, previously known as the Pediatric Heart Transplant Study, was initially a registry established in 1993 by a group of physicians who wanted to improve the lives of children who needed a heart transplant. With more than 25 years of data collection, 58 participating centers, the PSTS has produced 146 abstracts and presentations, as well as 96 publications, all of these directly impacting the care of patients receiving heart transplantation. Our guests today are Dr. Kirkland and Dr. Sue. Dr. James Kirkland is a professor in the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery and currently holds the James K. Kirkland Endowed Chair of Cardiovascular Surgery at the University of Alabama, previously named after his father. Dr. Kirkland has made significant scientific and surgical contributions in the fields of heart transplantation and mechanical circulatory support. He was also named the ISHLT 2020 Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Dr. Kirkland was the first surgeon to bridge an infant with single ventricle to successful heart transplantation using the Berlin Heart VAD. Our next guest today is Dr. Daphne Sue. Dr. Sue is one of the nation's leading experts in children's heart failure and heart transplantation. In addition to managing her extremely busy practice, Dr. Sue also conducts clinical research and is a nationally recognized pediatric cardiology thought leader. She has been the past president and a board member of the PHTS. In addition to authoring dozens of peer-reviewed cardiology studies, Dr. Sue also reviews pediatric cardiology-related grants for the FDA and the NIH. It is my extreme honor to be speaking with Dr. Kirkland and Dr. Sue today about the formation of the PHTS. Hi, Dr. Kirkland. Hey. Thank you so much for joining. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, Daphne. How are you? Fine. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Kirkland and Dr. Sue. Maybe we could start with a little bit of a, an idea as to how the idea of pediatric heart transplant study formulated. How did you identify that there was a need for such a collaborative effort? Well, uh, I'd be happy to. First of all, Niha, it's uh, great to join you. It's always uh, fun to talk about the pediatric heart transplant study and its origins because it was through the efforts of so many pediatric cardiologists, really primarily, and a few surgeons in the United States that made this uh, incredible society happen. But so let me give you just a little history. You know, pediatric heart transplantation is sort of 
been forgotten during the first 10 years at least of the heart transplant uh, experience. But it's important to remember back in 1967, recall that uh, Christian Barnard had electrified the world on December 3rd, 1967 in Cape Town when he performed the first human-to-human heart transplant. Right. But there is another very important individual whose name is Adrian Kantrowitz. He was in New York and on December 6th, Three days after Christian Barnard's historic first transplant, Adrian Cantoris performed a, the second human-to-human heart transplant. It was on a newborn, a neonate. And it was a mm-hmm. baby that was suffering from a fatal condition called Epstein's malformation. And there's a long, complex story related to uh, brain death and transporting donors and whether you could use an anencephalic donor, etc. But Adrian Cantoris did finally proceed with that transplant. He had been hoping to perform the first one. It was quite a race, you know, back then. And this uh, baby died shortly after the transplant from acute graft failure. But that was the start. But then there were children being transplanted in various places. Uh, Eric Rose did an early child transplant that was successful. But it really wasn't until 1984. Now, this is only nine years for the origins of the PHTS. 1984, Leonard Bailey really brought the field to life when he transplanted with his colleagues in Loma Linda a newborn infant with what's called hypoplastic left heart syndrome with a baboon heart. Mm-hmm. And this was called baby Faye. That baby lived 21 days. It died of, right. of things that were not related to rejection. But this really opened up the field of infant heart transplantation and really began for all of us involved in the field, began thinking of, of not only neonates and infants, but children as a, as a separate specialty really within heart transplantation. And as Loma Linda was getting worldwide recognition for their pioneering efforts, the rest of the world was percolating along and many of us were doing small babies and transplanting them and so on. At about the same time in the 1980s, my father and a statistical genius named Gene Blackstone had begun doing multi-institutional studies in what's called the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society. And they were uh, in, in Alabama at UAB, and I was watching them. I was a young faculty member, and I was watching as they began these very elegant multi-institutional studies, and I was part of this group in congenital heart surgery. And as I was watching it, I thought, you know, we could do something like that. And I was just beginning to get a research group. There was a young statistician named David Naftel. Mm-hmm. And we thought, you know, that could be done in heart transplantation. Nobody's ever done that before. And so in 1990, through the efforts of a wonderful colleague of mine named Bob Borge, as well as uh, others in the field of adult uh, heart failure, particularly Les Miller, we started what's called the Cardiac Transplant Research Database. And that was uh, the first multi-institutional studies in heart transplantation. Well, my, my greatest wish, even as we started that, was to begin a similar effort in pediatric heart transplantation. So mm-hmm. with the sort of the inspiration of the, my father and Gene Blackstone's work and building on our work with the CTRD in 1992, we began discussions, Bob Morrow and other colleagues in pediatric cardiology in multiple institutions. And in 1993, the pediatric heart transplant study was uh, born. Uh, the inception uh, really related directly to our working with Bob Morrow and, and other 
uh, people in the field. Charlie Cantor, Jay Fricker, uh, people like uh, Daphne, Linda Adnizio, that right. that were very interested in uh, this whole world of pediatric heart transplantation. So uh, that's how it got started. And it's interesting that the cardiac version of it lasted 20 years, but then the centers were not quite as dedicated at doing all of this data entries. So that stopped. But the pediatric heart transplant study, which I know you'll talk more about and Daphne will, has just blossomed into an incredible group of individuals, the vast majority of which are pediatric heart failure specialists, and and made this uh, study something that has lasted now nearly 30 years with incredible uh, productivity. So that's that's how it started. Yeah, that's incredible. I really like the anecdote about Adrian Kranowitz, and I was just looking up while you were talking that he was at Mamoinides Hospital in Brooklyn. So all like my husband would say, all good things start in New York. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, <laughs> Both like a um, true New Yorker, Neha. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, Dr. Sue, tell me a little bit about when the study group initially started, how many centers you were, and now it's grown to into such a large, um, you know, society, and even in, has international centers entering data. So, tell me a little bit about how you were able to achieve this incredible feat of growing from just a few centers to multiple continents that are now part of this. You know, again, Neha, this is a this is a really fun thing to do to look back on the history of something that has grown from, as you said, something very small to something that's become really an international collaborative. When you look back right. at 1992, when we started talking about this pediatric heart transplant study, the reason there were a small number of centers was because there were only a small number of centers doing transplant. We had started right. to meet at the International Society for Heart Lung Transplant meeting. We started to meet, we started to know each other. We were looking at our reports of our 10, 15, 30 patients in our experiences. And we realized that the only way for us to really learn what was happening in this population was to pool our, our knowledge and pool our resources and make the pediatric heart transplant study. So if you think about it, the pediatric heart transplant study in 1993 is one of the first multi-center collaboratives, really quality driven to look at outcomes in a brand new disease, which is heart transplantation. So that's how it, it wasn't really a limited number of centers. It was all the centers, just as it is today. So we grew along with the field. And as more centers started to do transplants, the wonderful thing about a group like Pietro Card Transplant Study is it's very inclusive. The idea was to Mm -hmm. only expand as much as you could because the more patients we had, the more we could learn. I think the thing that kept the study going for so long is the idea that we are collaborating on research. We are collaborating on making things better for the patients. We all see the benefit to ourselves and our patients through this study. So that's kept it alive, even though it hasn't been funded by a major organization or a non-governmental agency or a federal grant. It's been Mm -hmm. a a real sort of love of the field and love of our patients that's made everyone participate. And also that we see the benefit. We see that we've taught, other, we've taught each other a lot about how to take care of patients better. We've taught each other through our papers and our research and our, our analysis of the database. And we've also taught each other a lot by our meetings twice a year where you meet in a group and talk to people who are doing exactly what you do and dealing with the same problems. And that has been just as invaluable as the papers we write. And that's, I think, also the friendships we've made over the years also promulgated the the society. So now that we're international, we're international because we have a group of people that we really, we really are friendly with, like, and also learn from so that now there are no borders in heart transplant, right? 
Right. Everybody's dealing with the same issues. Right. They're dealing with the same problems. Our patients are getting older. We're using new immunosuppressions. We're dealing with more knowledge than we've ever had about the patients and how to manage them. And still, we don't know all the answers. So it's great to be able to access that now through action, through the database, through Basecamp. It's really sort of evolved along with the field of, along with the, not the field, but the idea of, of being connected in so many different ways. Absolutely. And I think what you mentioned about friendships and relationships is probably seen in the fact that the CTRD, the adult database kind of stopped collecting the data and pediatrics, we've still kept it alive so many years and it's still ongoing. So Dr. Kirkland, tell me a little bit about, I'm sure there must have been some roadblocks, some hiccups along the way. Tell us a few lessons that maybe you learned and how you maybe overcame some of the challenges as you started developing study and now that it's a society. Well, yeah, well, you know, when you think about it in 1993, and particularly in 1990 in the adult version, so we were sitting here at UAB, and we knew that we could do this, but how are we going to convince others that they could join us and we could have a huge collaborative effort that would actually work? And not only that... They had to actually roll up their sleeves, everyone, and submit their own data. Uh, initially, it was all on paper forms, <laughs> so it wasn't until mm-hmm. many years later that we had a web-based uh, data system. So we sat around at, at UAB in our little shop, and, and I decided that, look, if you're going to get people to participate, we're going to just have to fund this out of somewhere, some divisional resources, some funds that I had, some research activities to for a while to make sure that we can convince people like Daphne and, and uh, Charlie Cantor and Jay Fricker and Rob Shaddy, all these prominent people in pediatric uh, advanced heart failure, that this actually was worthwhile. So what we did was we said, look, we'll subsidize this for two years for free if you'll just put data in. And then at the end of that time, if you think it's worthwhile, then you can help support it which we had to support some salaries and so on to be able to do all this effort. So Mm -hmm. uh, that was a recipe that I think was successful. I think that if we would have asked for institutional support up front, that we would have largely uh, hit a major barrier because people are not going to, in a totally unknown product, you know, invest money in. So I think that's a a good recipe to remember in future such endeavors that if you have a product, particularly if it's an academic one that that you think can benefit others, but you eventually need funding for, you need to have a proof of concept first. But I must say, particularly in the pediatric realm, that was the only roadblock that we ever faced. I'm, I'm really amazed to say this, but there was, once it got started, these pediatric cardiologists who were, even by that time, were beginning to specialize in, in advanced heart failure transplantation, uh, not totally, but but a major portion of their time, they were so hungry to share information, to publish, to augment their their own curriculum vitae's because often the experience in an individual hospital is too small to write too many papers. So they got together very rapidly and really took this effort and ran with it. And so that was really uh, the only barrier was just getting us started. And then it's been really a self-starting continuation of productivity since then. Yeah, that's amazing. So Dr. Sue, I know that this 
scientific committee of the PSTS is really incredible. And there have been robust research papers that come out. There's a very great proposal system and a review committee. Tell us a little bit about how this process was started. How were some of the authorship guidelines set? And what is the success story of PSTS, uh, where everyone continues to contribute to data and is happy with these and papers that come out of it? That's a great that's a great question and a great story, Neha. Uh, Pantic Heart Transplants, like we have said, the principle was to do research. The principle was to look at data and analyze it and report on it. The second principle was to be inclusive. We've tried very, very hard to make sure that every investigator, very early on, we, we, we made lists and the statistical that David Naftal and Susanna Lemon helped us get a, get a rolling list to make sure everyone is included in analysis, every center had an opportunity to participate, every center had an opportunity to propose what they wanted to analyze, that we had a fair and impartial process for choosing the projects. And also we very early on decided that we would have the proposer be a person who had thought of the idea and the senior mentor on a paper would be someone from another institution, not the same institution as the person who proposed the, the project. That was specifically designed so that Mm -hmm. young investigators would have an opportunity to work with senior investigators around the world, really, now around the country for sure. That sets you up as a young investigator to have people who know you outside of your institution. As you go for promotion, you have people who say, sure, I've worked with that person and I'm I'm." I'm in another institution and I, I, know, I can attest to that person's work. And that, I think, also was a very, um, very important idea was that this was not to promote individual institutions. It was to promote, to promote the field. But the individuals still get credit for all their hard work in the preparation, analysis and development of writing of a manuscript. And, you know, Nihal, one other thing that you might not realize about the impact, if you look at every aspect of outcomes after pediatric heart transplantation, whether it be malignancies, rejections, allograft vasculopathy, uh, infections, survival, every one of those, the, the seminal publications in the world in every instance has come from the pediatric heart transplant study or society. So it's really phenomenal what these uh, people have done. and. If you think about just, I'll just give you a, well, one very, very incredible paper. So there was a paper that was published and Betsy Bloom from Boston Children's Hospital was the first author. And it was this paper mm-hmm. in circulation about pumps, artificial pumps, ventricular mm-hmm. assist devices in children. And to show you the impact in 2006, the, the power and the prestige of the pediatric heart transplant study this paper was selected as one of the 10 most meaningful, impactful publications scientifically in circulation from the American Heart Association that year. So I wow. saw this and I thought, isn't this interesting? And to show you, they were overwhelmed by the fact that this society had so many cases and we're talking about these devices and children and so on. But in fact, if they really understood the paper, they never would have selected it because the message of this paper was how poor 
the survival <laughs> when you have mm. young patients. So they showed curves which said that the survival with these pumps was great if you were greater than if you were a teenager. But as soon as you fell below 10 years of age, the survival on these devices while awaiting a heart transplant were terrible. And yet mm-hmm. this article was selected and it was sending a message. And the message of this article was we desperately need some pumps which are specifically designed for babies and children. And there were no such pumps available in the United States. And just after mm-hmm. that publication, about the same time, there, there began increased use of a special pump called the Berlin Heart, which was a very specialized pump that was developed in Germany that came in multiple sizes. And after this publication, essentially every center in the United States was beginning to employ this on an experimental basis, approved by the FDA, this device uh, specific for children. But this really seminal publication was not a great achievement. It was actually publishing the deficits that were existing uh, in pumps for children. But it was a, because it came from the pediatric heart transplant study with all these contributing institutions, the people in circulation, the American Heart Association decided, well, this is important. And I wasn't ever quite sure why, but there it was. I think sometimes identifying the knowledge gaps and seminal papers like this that bring issues to the forefront that we need devices for kids, I think that was the seminal part of the yeah, well, there was so. there was a big gap that's for sure <laughs> yes absolutely and just the force of collaboration i think is is amazing in pediatrics for sure that is different from the adult where they have large numbers at every center however in pediatrics we've always seen that uh, innovation comes from the need of uh, the hour in pediatrics where you need to collaborate to learn the fact that this study has now become a society and is still ongoing is such an incredible feat. First, tell us a little bit about how this study formulated into now a society. What are some of the important adaptations that are outside of just the database PHTS is doing now that has evolved from the time you first started? Yeah, Daphne, why don't you comment on that? She was instrumental in that process. Well, I think the evolution has been that we are moving observational database into the concept of practice variation, quality of care, and trying to harmonize our, our thoughts about how to care for patients in a more unified way. You know, we're all living in a world of protocol right. care. We're all living in a world of outcomes that we hope we can measure. I think the PHTS has positioned us very well to think about those issues, not necessarily told us exactly what to do. But as I see it, the society is going to be able to make some great strides in the future as the numbers of patients increases. And as we think about how we can make sure that we are looking at our care in a more in a more rigorous way. And the only way we can do that is through the pediatric heart transplant study group. No other database, the STS, the SRTR, has the data that the pediatric heart transplant study has on event-driven outcomes over the life of a transplant that can then inform us on how to take mm-hmm. care of our patients better, not for the immediate post-operative 30-day period, but for what we're looking at now for our patients, the 10 to 30-year post-transplant survival. So I think that's really where right. the power of the database is only going to get bigger. And we hope to, that we can apply better new research methods and the ability of the, the EMR and the electronic data capture to really show us even a little more information about what we're doing, seeing in our patients. And you know, Neha, when you think about new societies uh, in medicine, and certainly 
when you're talking about uh, societies in which they're specially based. Once you form a society, uniformly, the glue that tends to hold most societies together, not all, but most, is to say, okay, we need a registry. We need a database that will, that will help keep all of the members engaged and thinking about science. So with all the things that uh, Daphne was mentioning about uh, the productivity of the PHTS, I don't know what it was, three or four years ago, plus or minus, when I was sitting at one of our annual meetings and there began a discussion about, well, we've got this great study going, maybe there's more. And it became mm-hmm. apparent, two things. Number one, the idea of a society was particularly convenient because the acronym PHTS didn't even have to change <laughs> just from study to society. So that was, that was good. Mm-hmm. But also that coming the other direction from a database first and then a society made it incredibly easy. The hardest step had already been in place for over 25 years. So it right. was incredibly easy then to to blossom or evolve into a society. And so, you know, I, I'm just really a very supportive and happy observer of it all now. But as I watch this transformation into a full-blown society, it just it just makes me smile. Every every Zoom call or telephone call or, or personal meeting that that I attend about it, I see all of these vibrant people, many of them young. Uh, in their career that are extremely excited about the society and how easy it is for them to develop the society. And they don't really understand why there is a reason for that. And that's because if you have a 20 or 25 years, probably 25 years at that point, successful database, then mm-hmm. expanding that into a society is incredibly easy as opposed to the reverse, which is quite difficult. Yeah, so a strong foundation that was set up with a robust database. Now we're trying to make it into something bigger, better. So tell us a little bit about, Dr. Kirkland, the vision that you started with and the vision you have today of the PHTS, like how they're different. Well, I would say this, that the most, and Daphne has really emphasized this, the, the really important thing from the inception of this database was accurate completely Mm -hmm. analyzed data, which could be peer-reviewed, could be inclusive in terms of authorship, and could create highly respected publications in the field. So our focus for 20 years, at least, was getting really good data, making sure that we had it as accurate as it could be from our end at UAB to get as complete data submission from the centers and then do highly responsible, thoughtful analytics so that we could have really good papers. So that was the focus for, you know, 25 years. Mm -hmm. But I think now that not to be redundant, but building upon that becomes relatively easy. But can you imagine then if you build on that with all the things that a society has to offer, not only from a collaborative arrangement, but thinking about quality assurance uh, efforts, thinking about mm-hmm. uh, other programs within the society, like the mentorship program that uh, Daphne mentioned, whereby you have uh, senior authors mentoring younger authors. And so that evolves into a, an educational platform. Uh, what about uh, having a real society that can engage with other societies? There's this Mm -hmm. group called Action, which is uh, focuses on rapid 
turnaround of data in the mechanical circuitry support world. So there is okay. idea possibilities of collaborating with them and reaching out to other societies. And particularly when you have this great database, you have a lot of clout. This PHTS right. is highly respected, and I think as we discussed, it's the only it's the it's the only place in the world that you can find this uh, degree of uh, data on uh, heart transplant patients. So they've just uh, looking at all the ways that they can fulfill various opportunities as a society that really you could not do as just a research study group. Absolutely, Daphne. I know you had some ideas about where this study looks next, about clinical trials and everything. Do you want to comment a little bit on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, what Jim has said, the society was based in the very beginning on a very strong mandate from the individuals who are participating in it and a strong sense of responsibility that we have to move the field forward through research. That is a core principle and it should not change this as a study as a study morphs into a society. But then what you need to do is take that research and you need to, to make it visible. You need to make it visible to patients, make, make it visible to other individuals mm -hmm. who might not be in our field. You need to make sure that we can advocate for the things we're finding, for the patients that we serve, what they need, what they, what the future will hold for them. It really will depend sometimes on not us, but on other people taking care of them, on their insurance companies, on the government, on, on how people, the, the pharmaceutical companies who, who develop products for them to use as they face their transplant um, complications. So I think that's where the society will have the advocacy power that we have not as right. a study looked for. But I would say for the research, we need to move the field forward by saying to ourselves, what can we do to make our patients now that we know much more about the field than we knew before? When we started, we knew nothing. So we had no idea what was going to happen in the future. We learned so much. Now that we know, how can we implement measures that are going to make things better? And that's what we need to start mm -hmm. doing as we look at the data in the in the database and see what we could do to to change that in the future. So that does start to look at things like what is the variation rejection? What is the variation in our in event driven event driven <clears throat> complications? And how can we take the data we have to, to teach each other to say, oh well, we, you know, you have big variation and rejection incidents. How can we make that lower? What can we learn from best yeah. practices from each other? We do that informally, but perhaps we should do that a little more formally. So we can then use it to to make it, you know, as we, I think we've already made all boats float, <laughs> but let's make them all like fancy, fancy, you know, be efficient machines. It's a great vision and hopefully, you know, we can build on the success of the last 25 years and, and morph into, you know, something even more beautiful and bigger and better and larger. And last minute closing thoughts, uh, you know, we have listeners that are pediatricians. We have listeners that are probably medical students and it, they, they look up to you and what you've achieved in your career span. Do you have any words of wisdom for those listeners? Well, I would say that the most important thing professionally is to get a mission, whatever it might be in whatever aspect of medicine, just embrace a mission. And if you do that, then you can start to focus a bit of your time on something other than just carrying out what's most important is care of the patients. But it's fun. It's funny that, that for some people, individuals, that's enough. And that's great, whether it be a surgeons who just want are, are happy just to operate and have uh, superb outcomes. And the same with cardiologists or other uh, uh, caregivers. But for some, it's not enough. That's mm -hmm. the most important, but it's still not enough. And I think uh, a wonderful example is in, in this society where, where it couldn't be enough because 
in order to take care of patients successfully, we had to gather together, exchange information, and generate uh, publications. But that can happen in, in all aspects of medicine, pediatrics, and in surgery, that, that if you have a mission to look at beyond just the patients, even though they're the most important, look beyond that to other ways that uh, you can contribute. And I can even see it in this society. It's uh, which one thing you couldn't do as a study, even though it was done a little bit, was to reach out to individuals and centers in other parts of the world. To They're eager to think about joining a society, uh, even if they can't participate in the study. And mm-hmm. so I think this, uh, this whole idea of not only having a mission, but looking for to others that you can collaborate with, that you can have fun with, that you can do something novel with is very important Mm -hmm. because, you know, after all, it's a long grind taking care of these incredibly sick patients for 30, 40 or more years. So if you can't have some fun at it and try and generate (laughs) something along the way that you can pass on to others, it's not nearly as enjoyable. So I guess that'd be my message. Dr. Sue. I agree with Jim. It's been a lot of fun and it's been great to to have something that you feel you're participating in that's making things better for your patients on a larger level. And that's, that's the motivation. And it's just, it's been a great ride. And it will be a great ride for the people who are participating in the society in the future, because they'll see they're going to have an impact on the field with this large group behind them. Absolutely. I think what the Pediatric Heart Transplant Society has achieved is there's such, everyone's such a role model for other societies, other individuals, other collaborative effort. And I'm so excited to see what's next with all the collaborative efforts with different societies, as well as the the future steps that the society is taking. Thank you so much for sparing the time today to speak with me. I really appreciate you sticking it through despite all the scheduling issues and the technical snafus. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for sparing the time today. You're you're very welcome, Nia. It's a pleasure. thank Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that lovely conversation with Dr. Sue and Dr. Kirkland. I would like to thank you all for listening today. If you wish to get in touch with me, please email me at intheflow.peds at gmail.com. I hope you will join me in the next episode. And until next time, namaste.